You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, what you gonna do when the largest of the McHuge runs wild on you, brother? <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. I don't, I don't know. Wait a minute. Uh, do I have to answer that question? That isn't our trivia question, is it? Because I don't know no, what no, I'd no, do if the McLarge ran on you. That's a, a rhetorical. Oh. oh. So, what is going on? How you doing? How you ding? <laughs> I'm, I'm good, man. I, what's going on? It's the same thing that's always going on. All kinds of stuff. Ah, ah. see? And that, and that here uh, leads into what I was going to talk about ah. today. Yeah, uh, the, with the same thing that's always been going on. So, I'm a big fan of what I call kicking the jukebox. Yes. You know, if you always do the same thing, you're always going to get the same results. So, you have to change things up every once in a while. Agreed. So as we've established, and as you know, I like to draw, and I like to draw portraits. That's my my thing. I really like drawing faces and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to change up the way I do things, and I'd seen a picture of, uh, of this girl that I know. And for starters, I don't like drawing girls. Uh, they're, they're too pretty, and I'm always afraid it's not going to come out right. And then I'll get yelled at, you know, you made me ugly kind of a thing. (laughs) That's like a a 1960s horror movie plot right there. That sounds like a Herschel Gordon Lewis plot. Like, (laughs) the artist of blood. I can't draw you pretty. Therefore, into some horrifying contraption you go. Right, exactly. They have to make her ugly so that I can draw her properly. That's a great idea. That is a a great idea for a horror movie. Um, So at any rate, uh, my friend Sierra is a very pretty girl. She had this cool like photograph up on her Facebook where it, it, lo- it was like one of those very dark photographs where the light is all coming in from like one angle, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And I really liked that picture. So I messaged her first because just drawing somebody, because I do live streams of my drawings. Yes. Uh, you know, just drawing somebody, I don't know, it just that's got like a creeper vibe to it. So I asked her if she mind if I draw her first, you know? Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's fine. What I did was... I blacked out the entire page. I don't want to say canvas because it's paper, but you know, I blacked out the entire thing first. I just rolled over it with like three or four different layers of just charcoal pencils and smudged it all in, just made a black thing to work with. And then with erasers, I did all the highlights. Okay. So yeah, I was literally drawing with erasers rather than drawing with a pencil. Yeah, just a complete backwards... Uh, way of of going about things and i don't love it (laughs) no well i mean like the first time you try something that's new like a new technique or something it's it's bound to make you you know question whether or not it was a good idea and examine your process and that that was a question i definitely asked myself why did i do this why why did i start doing this? oh my god what was i thinking 
you typically write in a third person perspective. If you wrote in a first person perspective, that would be something. You know? Well, I've done that. So I, I actually generally I write. Feel? In, I, I generally write in first person perspective, first person present tense. So like the character is telling you the story in real time. Yeah, like um, um, Brett Ellis and right, 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 like Brett Easton Ellis. Yes, um, but I did write a couple of stories in third person omniscient. There was a point I was editing somebody else's work, and his was third person omniscient, and I found the sentence structure really boring. And I wondered oh, if right. I could still write in a way, if I could write in third person and make the sentence structure interesting. I, that ended up becoming the story that I wrote called Mighty, uh-huh. and I wrote it specifically to for the language to have. A particular feel and scope in the sentence structure and it was really fun it was hard but it was really fun to do that that's what's going on here mm-hmm. is it was interesting to draw like that yes but because it didn't come out as good as i was hoping i'm, I'm like mad and i don't like it but uh, yeah, maybe i'll do more like that who knows well there you go it's you know it's it's it gets better as you do it i'm sure if you do it no, again i want to get it right on the first try every time <laughs> all right so, this is going to be the week beginning May the 9th, but before we get into our show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Remember man. the 1990s? There was that popular for like a hot second soda, OK Soda? Yeah. They test marketed in the town I live in. That's right. Okay. So, it was called OK because, because OK was the second most recognizable like word in the world not just in the english language in the world okay is pretty universal in every language uh but it was the second most recognized word in the world all right they couldn't use the first most recognized word in the world because it was already being used what was the most recognized word in the world that okay soda could not use is it is we talking English word? It's a word. But like, is you it get no English? Hints. <laughs> you get well, no hints. I mean, we have a you. lot of languages here, Bill, to to deal with. We have a lot of language. I'm going to have to ask for clarification when we get to the end of the show. Okay. Nope. You can ask all you want. You're not getting it. <laughs> okay. All right, but this is the week beginning, uh, May the ninth, and I think it's you, it's your turn to start, isn't it? Uh, let me check my calendar. Oh, it is. Good. Well, we'll start off our May 9th with a quote from America's favorite vice president. Yay! <laughs> vice President Dan Quill, who in 1989, while speaking to the United Negro College Fund, so I'm going to guess that's like the board of directors and and accumulated workers, mangled their slogan, the mind is a terrible thing to waste, by saying, what a waste it is to lose one's mind. Or, not to have a mind is being very wasteful. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Vice President Quayle, <laughs> for that <laughs> offensive word salad. Just George H.W. Bush just like pinching the bridge of his nose like, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> That's not the real reason we're here at May 9th. We're here at May 9th, 1980, because Bill, I know this is your f- absolute favorite movie of all time. The very first, like, real exploitative slasher film the friday the 13th is released in u.s cinemas i love this movie and i'm not even gonna say i unashamedly love this movie because i don't think there's any reason to be ashamed 
Friday the 13th, 1980s Friday the 13th is an amazing horror movie with spectacular storytelling. Fight me, anybody that wants to try. I'm not going to argue. <laughs> I used to have people come over the house once a week for movie nights and all that. And there was a couple of people that had never seen, you know, the Friday the 13th series. They, they just knew it as it being, you know, hokey with like Jason Voorhees and stuff. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. You, you need to see that first one. You know, we got towards the end of the movie and there is this four minute sequence where nothing happens. It's just uh, the girls making coffee. And the audience knows that all of her friends are dead, but right. she doesn't know that. And it's just this four minute long, really tense scene of just her making coffee. And that's what horror is. That's what that beautiful element of just like building of tension. Yes. Oh, I Yes, I love horror movies. It is a super, super tense movie. I haven't watched it in a, a long time. I, I've spent way more time with the lower quality sequels for their more exploitative value and general. Oh, they drop off like a they, roller coaster. Oh, my yeah. God, they do. By, by, <laughs> by Friday the 13th, 3 and 3D, it's like, this movie's terrible. And, all, <laughs> and, it, and it sort of... I think it hurts the first one a little bit, but they're really fun. It's like They're like Jaws the Revenge fun. Jaws is a great movie. I watch Jaws yeah. maybe once every 10 years. I watch Jaws the Revenge every month, it feels like. <laughs> I watch that movie so many times I've memorized all of Michael Caine's dialogue. It's awful, and I love it. So, like with Friday the 13th, the first film is really played straight and really done well and surprisingly good. It's made for, like, the equivalent of, the you know, two McDonald's gift certificates and, and a free French fries, and it still really, really works. Uh for me, the, the, I don't know, you can make these arguments like you said the part three you didn't you didn't care for. No, no, I, uh, I, I like it. It just isn't as good. Yeah. It's not as good a film as the first one. It's not as tense. Yeah. It's not it's as. It's not my favorite. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like a copy of a copy. Yeah. Sure. You know? Part four, I will take these things and I will dissect these movies and talk intellectually about them as long as anyone will let me. But we just watched part four all not that long ago. I really liked how they use what you were just talking about, in a way. They kind of use the Jaws model in that movie, where you don't really see Jason, you don't see the mask until like the third act. You kind of see his hands, or you see him from the back, or whatever. But yeah, you really don't see the mask until the third act. They, they use the Jaws model. Yeah. Hey, you know what's interesting about Friday the 13th Part 3? is they actually never mention Jason at all in that movie. Really? Yep. Huh. They never call him by name. They, I mean, there's a flashback scene from Friday the 13th Part 2 at the very beginning, but that's not the film proper. Right. But they never say Jason or Jason Voorhees or anything like that in Friday the 13th Part 3. Huh. I'll have to go back and watch it. <laughs> I never picked up on that. Huh. Yep, interesting celebrity kills in the very first one. That's Kevin Bacon that's getting the arrow through his chest. Yep. And if you ever watch that scene and you're thinking to yourself, man, Mrs. Voorhees has got some hairy freaking knuckles, and that's because that's Tom Savini's hands. <laughs> <laughs> and Crispin Glover gets killed in Friday the 13th Part 4. Yes, I remember. After doing the weird dance, which they had to remap the music. Do you know the story about, about that? The da- when he does it's, the dance in the house? I do, but yeah. you can tell it. Oh, right, so... Originally, he put on an actual record. And I forget the song, but they didn't have the rights to the it was song. Back in Black. Oh, okay, Back in Black, right, ACDC. They didn't have the rights to use it. So they sort of mapped on music that they did have the rights to, which is a completely different tempo. And 
<laughs> it makes the dance look even more weird and like something Crispin Glover would have done on purpose. Yes. <laughs> One of the best parts of that whole film, I think, is that part. Yes. My favorite part about that scene is funnier than his dance is his reason for dancing. He asks the girl to dance and then he goes, it's good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Moving on to May the 10th, 1869. The United States Transcontinental Railroad is completed with the driving of the Golden Spike. And at Promontory Point, Utah. So, yep, connecting California to New York. Uh, the, one big railroad system. Finally, now goods can travel from one coast to the other in just a few days, I guess. I'm not sure how long it yeah. takes to cross the country in a steam train, but it can't be super fast. But it's certainly faster than going by wagon train. Right. And also, you can carry a lot more, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So commerce is going to follow where the railroad goes. Yep. And it's going to create a lot of business and commerce opportunities in between as there are stops and towns and other things that come up around the railroad. It also makes for great plots for approximately 700 million Western movies where the railroad's (laughs) going to go through somebody's land and they have to fight off the railroad barons to, you know. It also lays hand to a very convoluted part to Back to the Future Part 3 as well. It does, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes. You have outside of commuter rails and stuff like that, like the T in Boston, have you ever ridden on a train, like on a cross-country train kind of thing? I haven't, but that's how my girlfriend gets back and forth to Wisconsin when she has to go to Wisconsin. So she definitely rides the Amtraks out of like Albany, New York to get to uh, Chicago. Oh, really? Yep. She's been back and forth a few times this year already. Oh, wow. No kidding. Oh, I have to talk to her about that because I'm actually going to Chicago. Well, we're, we're planning on driving, but I'm actually going to Chicago in a couple of weeks. I could have... Uh, could have looked into the train tickets instead. Yeah. I'll have to look that up. And depending on when you go, they can get relatively inexpensive or really expensive. And depending, right. you know, if you get a seat, it's way cheaper than getting a room at, which is cheaper than getting a room. But they have all those right. options that are there. Yeah. I've never done that. I've, I've only done like commuter rails and uh, the tea service in Boston. Uh, no, I've never did the train thing. I'd like to, though. I mean, just like as a bucket list thing. It seems interesting. I used to love Brit Rail when I lived in England. Being able to take the trains anywhere was great. So I have a friend of mine, he, uh, he, he moved out to California. He had like an internet girlfriend. He moved out to California. It didn't work out that well. He got a train to come back to Massachusetts. And by the time he got back to Massachusetts, they had kind of patched up whatever. So he immediately turned around and got on a train and went back to California. <laughs> He's been there ever since. All right. Well, that's a- that's a love story. That's gonna come, that's gonna be a double feature with our. Uh, I can't draw girls to get there, so I have to make them ugly. Yes, horror film. Yes. All right, moving on. May eleventh, eighteen twelve. The fad dance, the waltz, is introduced into English ballrooms, and like anything else, in apparently in the early eighteen hundreds, it causes a sensation. Women faint. Men get in fights. Children cry. People put on top hats and then take them off again. Women wear pants because. Observers of the waltz consider it disgusting and immoral. There's nothing more immoral than a man walking around with a top hat with his wife by the side wearing pants, dancing around as some three-fourths time signature. That's right. It's like the box step is like obviously far too sultry. It's like the lambada before the lambada. (laughs) The waltz, the forbidden dance. Like if you watch people waltz, it is not a sultry dance. 
It is. It's it not is sexy not, at it all. It is not no. sexy at all. The tango that's can be sexy. Salsa, I'm right there with you. The waltz though, it is not. And I guess in comparison to those like weird ass, all the women hold hands and then stare at the guys across the room who are also holding hands with each other and then bowing and turning around and bowing and turning around dances that I see like in films around like Pride and Prejudice, those kind of oh, dances. Yeah, that, that, yeah. But yep. like, I'm sure that the, compared to that, the waltz is like punk rock compared to yes. <laughs> and you know, I, 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 I don't understand it. If I could get the DeLorean time machine, I would really waste a lot of trips. Because one of them would be, I would bring my little, you know, cell phone with me, and I would download. Because obviously, there's no cell f- right. service out there. But I would have to like download a couple of TikTok videos of like girls twerking and stuff like that, and showing it to these waltz dancers, and just watching their head explode, like the opening sequence from Scanners. I I know what I would do, time machine wise. I would kidnap Chubby Checker, and I would just airdrop him right into this ballroom. He'd be like, "Oh, come on, everybody!" <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, boom, 1812, the twist. We completely changed the whole history of music right there and dancing. Everybody wears pants, Bill. Everybody wears top hats. Everybody does the twist. It's just a sensation. Like we did last summer. Sweeping the nation. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, moving on to the 12th. What do we have? <laughs> May 12th, 1993. Uh, as we were discussing earlier in the show, or show setup, Bill, fools and their money are soon parted. Uh, when two small slivers of olive wood that are claimed to be slivers of Jesus's true cross are auctioned off and sell for eighteen thousand five hundred and eighty-seven dollars. Now what? <laughs> now, unlike the usual sort of wood from the true cross scam that people have been running out of the back of magazines for two hundred years, these aren't. Oh yeah, just, you get it like a piece of somebody's desk. These aren't, yeah, right? these aren't shaved off of somebody's desk. These were. These have a lineage that goes back through a family all the way back to like 1800 and maybe a little bit before that even that they've been in this person's family in in Austria. So technically, these belong to Saint Helena of Austria. But uh, you know, it's like anything else. It's like the. It's like the Tibetan monk's hand. It's like Saint yeah. Geronimo's nose or whatever. Like no one knows where those things came from. Now, according to you know Catholic. Uh, dogma, re- yes. legend, whatever. Right. According to the, the Catholic legend, uh, this Saint Helena discovered or found or whatever the true cross in 320 CE. Okay, so that is uh, roughly 280 years after the fact. It's like, how did you? How did you just? I, I don't know. This. I have a lot of questions on why Saint Helena was canonized and not like run out of town as a bullshit. Right, right. I don't know. The family that owned it were named the Thuvenels, and I don't know whatever sure happened to them. Barnum. <laughs> I wonder who the people that bought it are. My favorite thing that makes these clearly heirlooms worthy of keep is they came with certificates of authenticity, which if you were to buy like the Civil War chess set would also come with certificates of authenticity. <laughs> so I don't know what any of that means to establish anything other than people are incredibly gullible. Yeah. <laughs> You're a certified fool. Yeah, yes. I watched a documentary about the Amityville Horror, like a, a a more recent one, and they had Lorraine Warren on there, and she like opens up this like you know those cigarette cases there, like women had like in the seventies, they had the leather ones. Yes, she opens that up and she produces pieces of wood from the True Cross, and I'm thinking, why do you have this? Why isn't it in the Vatican? Why is it in a cigarette case in Western Connecticut? <laughs> that, that woman was uh, something else. Hey, uh, 
So let's go back to the waltz for a second here. Sure. So it, too bad we had that day in the middle because a great lead-in would talk about all the sex that people were having mm-hmm. with these sexy dances uh, with them box-stepping around the barn uh, over there. They had a lot of babies. and uh, But that was a game-changer in 1960. May 13th, 1960, the oral contraceptive, better known to the world as the pill, is introduced. Oh, wow. And my parents still had me. Go figure. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I still got born. I guess it didn't change the world after all. No, yeah. uh, the oral contraceptive for women is a revolutionary uh, product. Mm-hmm. Absolutely revolutionary. And still helps with not just prevention of pregnancy, but with other conditions that are triggered by the woman's natural cycle. And it gives women a lot of body autonomy and is one of the foundational principles in establishing women as equal partners of men in our society. I will freely admit that all of that stuff is a mystery to me. I don't know. It's a great magic trick. I don't know how it works. I don't really care to know how it works. I just know that it works. And that's fine. Like it's been said, it, it was controversial at its time. It's still controversial. It is. In some markets, not in this one, but in some markets, it's controversial to, uh, you know, to now. Yes. My mother was more than happy to tell me and everybody that in shouting distance that she would always have uh, irregular cycles and stuff. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, she would tell perfect strangers. And whenever she got pregnant with me, you know, her cycle was thrown off. And she went to the doctor because she wanted to get put on birth control to straighten out her cycles. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like, yeah, I don't think that's going to be necessary. <laughs> it's sad that, you know, for all the gains that we've made, um, and not to make the show political because it's not what we do here, but... Don't you that, dare! That oral contraception that has been around for this long is—it's—it's it's like 52 years now—is still—is still a controversial idea, and that there are still a significant number of people who believe that. Yeah. You know. More than that, dude. 62 years. 62 years, right? Yeah. Jeez. Yep. Um, who still believe that women shouldn't have control of their own body and cycles, and that it's an affront, and that's difficult, especially considering again, like it's not like civilization has collapsed over the last 60 years because the pill has been on the market. It just hasn't. And I hear it's good for your skin too. <laughs> I went to school with a girl who was put on birth control not because she was sexually active. I don't have that answer. That's none of my business. But she was put on birth control at like 14 or 15 years old to straighten out her acne. She had really bad acne. And apparently one of the side effects of the oral contraceptive is it can clear your skin up. Oh, well, that's... See, again, it has a lot of uses. I know other women have taken it because it reduces the severity of their cycle and it has other beneficial properties. All right. Hey, here's some more sexy dancing going on, Jeff. If a box step and doing the waltz isn't good enough for you... We can celebrate on May the 14th. It's one of our weird holidays, Jeff. (laughs) May the 14th is Dance Like a Chicken Day. (laughs) Yes. And so we should play what is generally considered the worst song ever, right? The Tweet Tweet song there, which is essentially the chicken dance. Uh, Right. I think it's like called the, I think it's originally called the bird dance. The the bird, yeah, yeah, the the bird dance. Actually, you know where I think you, where I thought you were going with this, 
is worst song ever from a couple of weeks ago. Their moves like Jagger because <laughs> Jagger dances like a damn chicken. <laughs> he definitely does. The only person I've seen that they've made a robot that duplicates his dance, which is not even a humanoid robot, and it still looks like Mick Jagger. Oh my god, that was so funny. I've seen that robot before. Yeah. Well, <laughs> back to our, you know, forgotten holiday dance like a chicken day. I know uh, much like talk like a pirate day, uh, swear like a sailor day, pirate day or swear like a sailor day, dance like a chicken day should be an every year occurrence where everybody gets together in the center of whatever towns they live in and does one full hour of the chicken dance. That, that's what I, we would do if I was the ruler. And I was secede from that union. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> moving on, Jeff. What do we got for the 15th? May 15th, 1987. The worst movie ever. <laughs> True Hollywood bomb. Ishtar, starring Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty, comes out and it is savaged by critics and almost nobody goes to see it. And it becomes a $55 million write-off for the studio that makes it. It lost $55 million in 1987 money. That's like That's like a ton of money. That's like Guardians that of the is, Galaxy if it was a bomb. Yeah, that would be like $137 million now. That's that, that's a big loss. That's a lot of cabbage, yeah. And it's a film that like Dustin Hoffman had won an Oscar just a couple of years before for Tootsie or was nominated for a couple of years before for Tootsie and then a couple of years before that for Kramer versus Kramer. And Warren Beatty had been a heartthrob since the 1970s and they both ended up in this just utter stinkeroo of a road picture which was sort of modeled on the old Bob Hope Bing Crosby style. Uh-huh. movies and it's not funny the music in it is terrible the plot is stupid the characters are awful the writing is bad the directing is terrible it feels like it's 100 hours long and it's only like 92 minutes you want to hear something embarrassing like my my embarrassing story i've never seen this movie i only know of this movie because it's you know it's famous for being a, a bomb but i remember seeing the trailer Mm-hmm. In the theater, like I had gone to see some other movie and I saw the trailer for Ishtar. And there's a scene where they're like both in the desert, like just, you know, dying. Yep. And there's a vulture that comes like walking into frame. And Dustin Hoffman says, no, no, he's not dead yet. Come back later. Go away. Yeah. And I said to myself, this movie looks funny. I want to <laughs> see this. <laughs> well, again, they borrowed a lot of the comedy from the like, Bob Hope and uh, Bing Crosby Road pictures, and it just it just doesn't translate to 1987. It just it doesn't work. Well, yeah, little did I know the one good joke in the movie was that one. Well, that's why it was in the trailer, because they yeah. had to use it someplace, you know, where it was going to have impact, because people would be leaving the theater in droves before they got to that in the actual film. Yeah, I remember it used to be advertised. Remember the little booklet you get from cable TV with, like, HBO and all the movies in HBO yes. with the schedule. And you get to Ishtar in a schedule and it would just go, Ishtar, 8 p.m. You probably want to watch a different channel. You know? <laughs> all right, let's move on to our celebrity birthdays. May the 9th, 1949. You know, there's uh, that common dichotomy in this country where, you know, you're either an Elvis guy or a Beatles guy. You're either a Coke guy or a Pepsi guy. Right. You're either into Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin. And you're either into Elton John or you're into the birthday boy over here. Mm-hmm. May the 9th, 1949, Mr. Billy Joel. I am definitely in the Billy Joel camp. Are you? I think his 70s output is extraordinarily good. I do too. I think Billy Joel's best work concluded with Glass Houses. <laughs> I like the shift that he made to become a fixture on MTV. And he did it by playing music that didn't fit on MTV. He did a bunch of 50s style and weird-ass doo-wop stuff and 
unnecessarily yeah. nostalgic things. And then he did some like message music. But amongst all of those things, I've gone back and listened to him and his earlier stuff and his early 80s stuff and his mid 80s stuff, it holds up a lot better than you ever thought it would have at the time. Let's not, you know, not overlook the fact that he married Christy Brinkley. So I guess his music must have been really good because right. she's a beautiful girl and <laughs> he is and not he, a beautiful girl. He looks like Darth Vader at the very end of Return of the Jedi. Now. He certainly does. Yes, he does. All right, moving on. The 10th. May 10th, 1978, the longest-serving actor on Saturday Night Live, Kenan Thompson, who is oh, not yeah. only an 18-year veteran of that, but had a f- multiple years on a show as a kid, sketch comedy show on Nickelodeon called Kenan and Kel. And yep. I think before that, he was on All That. I'm not sure if he was if Kenan and Kel came out of that show, and I think it did. But the right. dude's been super funny since he was a kid. That's a Good Burger movie too, right? I was just going to say, I remember, I could not wait to go see Good... I'm an adult when that... Yep. I was an adult when that movie came out, and I couldn't wait to go see it because the show was so funny. At a time yeah. when there was plenty of places to find funny sketch comedy, Keenan and Cal stuck out, and he was yep. able to transition to Saturday Night Live flawlessly and become a, a real anchor cast member for that show. He is super duper funny. Not only is he the longest running cast member on Saturday Night Live, he's the longest running cast member ever. Longer than anybody else that yeah. was ever on that show for. Yeah. That's crazy. Cuckoo. Yeah, it's just him yeah. and Lord Michaels, right? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, right. Uh, yeah, I, I like Keenan. I, like, whenever I see, because I watch a lot of Saturday Night Live sketches on, on YouTube, mm-hmm. and I will always watch the Keenan Thompson sketches he's always funny all right but next up on the birthdays may the 11th 1959 one of the very first of the first five mtv video vjs martha quinn ah i remember being hopelessly in love with her when i was like 13 yep she has apparently made some sort of deal with the devil because at 63 years old, she still looks fantastic. She still looks almost the same. Yeah. You know, obviously a little older, but not, I've seen worse. I've I think seen worse she, at 63. I think she literally stood just the right number of inches away from David Lee Roth to interview him. That she <laughs> sucked his life force away. Because if you've seen David Lee Roth recently, he looks almost like Phil Collins. But like Martha Quinn was always like the most interesting, I think, of the MTV VJs. Because she was the one who, was, who ultimately became closest to being a journalist when she was interviewing people. The other yes. VJs, not so much. But she definitely asked like interesting questions and got herself out in front of a lot of really famous people. Especially in the early years. And helped define what that component of music television would be. She still like does stuff she still like does dj work and and stuff like that i've heard her interviewed on a few different podcasts you know like 80s nostalgia podcasts and she's super cool super just a a very personable real person you know yes she she was she was doing uh all of the vjs that are still alive have been were doing like stuff on satellite radio for a while and she yeah. was too. And now I still hear her whenever I'm listening to the 80s channel because she goes, we're all here. Even though she's not anymore. <laughs> all right. Next up. May 12th, 1950. Bill, I'm going to bring this guy up and we're both going to laugh. And then we're both going to say the same damn thing. So uh, May 12th, 1950, Billy Squire. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Billy Squire, whose career was torpedoed by an MTV video. Yep. And who is way better than that MTV video would have you believe. 
Oh my God, that video for Rock Me Tonight is like legendary for just tanking, tanking that guy's career. But I did, my, you know, I'm still doing it this year too, but last year I did that album a day, every day yep. thing. And one of the albums I listened to, it wasn't his first album, it's actually his second album called Don't Say No, but that was like his first like breakthrough album. Yes. That album is phenomenal. The whole album is amazing. He's like, you know, for those of you who don't know who he is, and that wouldn't surprise me. I'm just going to put that out there. But he's way more like Ronnie Montrose or Sammy Hagar when he was in Montrose. Billy Squire falls into that same style, that like hard rock guitar, but not metal, not singer-songwriter. It's like heavy rock and roll, really fun, heavy rock and roll. Billy Squire was the first musician I ever heard classified as heavy metal, which is odd because I don't think of him as heavy metal at all, but... Casey Kasem, right before they played In the Dark on American Top 40, referred to him as heavy metal. And also, my friend Roger, Roger Chenard, his uncle was the drummer for Billy Squire. Really? Oh, yep. that's super cool. All right, and next up on the 13th, May the 13th, 1922, uh, everybody's second favorite Golden Girl, B. Arthur. Ah, second favorite Golden Girl, favorite uh, star of a... Americanized version of Faulty Towers and favorite character on All in the Family and then later Maude. Yep. She, before all of that, actually was a Marine. She served as a Marine during World War II. Right. They didn't have a lot of female Marines at that time. Right. You know? And uh, I'm looking at her Marine picture, like her ID. And yeah, she just looks very no nonsense. Like, I'll kill you. <laughs> Not to jump the gun on our next birthday, but she also has a role uh, in the Star Wars holiday special. Oh, yes, that's right. Yep. And she was one of those people that could make you laugh with a look. Yes. You know, she had a very stoic and deadpan delivery to her stuff. You know, she wasn't very overly animated. She could just get you with a look. I remember watching one of the celebrity roasts. Yes. That they do on Comedy Central. Mm -hmm. And it was the one for Pamela Anderson. Oh, I and remember all, that one, yeah. And all B. Arthur did was get up on the stage and just read segments out of Pamela Anderson's book. <laughs> and then she would just, like, look up. Glare at her. And make these faces. She had no jokes at all. It was yeah. all in her delivery. No. It was amazing. Just yeah, a sh that is true comedy right there, that you could just say anything and make it funny. Yeah. Uh, but you kind of buried the lead into the next one, so go ahead. May 14th, 1944, visionary filmmaker George Lucas, father of Star Wars and Indiana Jones and THX 1138. And that American movie movies. about World War II pilots, I think, that last <laughs> that movie, movie that he did. Yes, Red Tails. And uh, wait, what was that other one? What was that animated one he did? He, Twice Upon a Time. Twice Upon a Time, yes. yes. My Excisos Gluteus Maximus. That movie's hilarious. <laughs> I do not have a resume, but I do have a piece of paper that is stamped and notarized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about that movie last week. A wonderful, goofy cartoon that... I, I don't know that it ever went to cinemas, but it was on HBO a hundred million times a day for two years yeah. back in the 80s, yes. Funny all the... I, I saw that movie a bunch of times. That I, I did, too. Funny. I did, too. It's the first time I ever heard the phrase scuzzlebutt. Remember the little yeah. rat creature with scuzzlebutt? Anyway. This uh, is uh, like George... one of those things where, like, Jeff and I, at the beginning of the show, said, let's see how much we can talk about George Lucas without mentioning Star Wars. Right. What I was going to say was, uh, he has one of my favorite quotes, because if you've ever heard George Lucas talk, he sort of, he sort of talks like this. He's very sort of yeah. soft-spoken. 
And, you know, he's one of the young Maverick filmmakers from the 70s. Guys like Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, and others who sort of redefined film after the Hayes Code ended and the the MPAA started to, to regulate films, right? So Lucas was way into science fiction. Coppola was way into more historical stuff and crime dramas and things. Well, when Coppola was making Gangs of New York, he built the five points in this part of Italy where they were shooting the movie, rebuilt the city so they could shoot it in like a real place. And he was so proud of it. He was showing it to George Lucas and he's walking around and he goes, isn't this great, George? Look at this. Look at this set. And George Lucas says, we do all this with computers now. (laughs) That was his his only comment. We do all this with computers now. It was so funny. And you can see the, the two different approaches to filmmaking. And that was right around the time that like Revenge of the Sith was coming out. I have gone back very recently to watch the original Star Wars and, and marvel at how much I enjoyed it again. I haven't seen the movie in probably 30 years, so I uh, very much enjoyed watching it. I love the story of, in order to save a couple of bucks at the at the time of the, the, the film being made, 20th Century Fox gave George Lucas this deal that he could have exclusive rights to all the marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than giving him, you know, X amount of dollars for the movie, they gave him that part of the contract. Right. And that made him a billionaire with yes. all the toys sold and all that. I other think stuff. technically yeah. it's, it's a bajillionaire. And wrapping up the week of birthdays, ooh, another maverick filmmaker. <laughs> Point and shoot. No, no, yeah. wait. <laughs> May the 15th, 1905, a man by the name of Abraham Zapruda, who brought his camera, his video cameras with him, his little 8 millimeter to Dallas one fall afternoon because there was a parade going by and your friend and mine, John F. Kennedy, was in that parade. And that is the parade where John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And the only film of that incident is the Sabruta film. So if you've seen the President Kennedy assassination, that's what you're looking at, the film made by this man, Abraham Sabruta. Yes. Hard name to say. It was a big deal when it was finally released to the public. And then there was like a weird DVD release where that was like colorized and stabilized and slowed down and sped up and black and white and all these other things that they did to it to sort of make it. I don't, I don't, I think it's morbid and weird to watch. I don't know. That's just me. Oh, yeah. I realize that's, that's when Oliver Stone lays in bed at night and closes his eyes and begins to touch his nipples. That's the film that he's thinking about. <laughs> but like for me, it's like it, I watched the first time I saw it, I was, it made me nauseous. In subsequent viewings, like when watching stuff about, you know, conspiracy theories and things, I always find it really, really sad and off putting. You know, what I, I don't know. It's, yeah. a, it's a really funny reaction I have to that particular piece of film. You know what gives me a horrible reaction like that? Worst song ever. All right, Jeff, what do we have in the canon this week for the worst song ever? All right, Bill. Pinching my the top of the bridge of my nose as I think about this song that I've listened to now 65 times today. In looking at our list of where we draw the worst song ever's from, a recent one that we had in the list had this song right beneath it. And I thought, oh, that song causes pain to parts of my body that are not just my ears. And it is a song called the Motown Song, as sung by ravelly-voiced English pipe cleaner with a blonde wig on, Rod Stewart. This is a song that sounds like it should only ever be heard when credits are rolling up a movie screen. Now, hold on a second. Wait a tick. And now, I remember this Rod Stewart song so well that here's the clip. Say it. 
I remember when this song came out and being kind of mad like you are now because this is a cover song. This isn't a Rod Stewart song, yeah. And it it does appear in a movie in the end credits. Uh, It's in the movie Inner, the the original anyway, is in the movie Inner Space. Right. With, what was it, is it Martin Short? Yeah, Martin Short and Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does play as the closing credits go up. Now, I know the original of this because (laughs) uh, it's on the soundtrack. I guess you're right. This is a song that belongs on movie soundtracks because it's in the soundtrack to the movie, ready for this, Quicksilver, a movie about bicycle couriers in New York. There's a sizzler. Yeah, I actually own the soundtrack for that for reasons I don't really want it to vault. So that's their one soundtrack sale, now that we know that, Bill. Uh, Two! <laughs> well, we're not talking about the original version, however, as good as the original version is. No, the original, the original version cool. is kind of cool. It's nostalgic, it sounds like it's made for a movie, because ironically enough, it kind of was. Yep. But the Rod Stewart version, the version that we have here today, is... It's not good. It's not no, it's, it's, it's it's not good for a myriad reasons. Okay? If you throw this song on, there's a big selling point that it also contains the temptations. I like the temptations, Bill. Do you like the temptations? I do. Do you like to hear the temptations sing the same seven words over and over again for four minutes and nine seconds? No. Neither and, do and I. You know, <laughs> and, and you know what? I put this old Motown record song on um I put it on today to listen to it because, like I said, I do like that original song. But Rod Stewart's version, even with The Temptations there, The Temptations, they are the sugar to off-put his bottle of apple cider vinegar. Like, that's how powerful he is to bring this song down. Well... Like not even the Temptations can put the soul back in this song. I don't even think the Temptations know they're on this song. I'm going to say that. Uh, This song sounds like it was built in parts and they like subcontracted it out. This is on an album called Vagabond Heart, which after listening to it today, I'm actually going to go probably buy a copy of it if I run into it used at one of these record stores that I tend to frequent. Because there are a a bunch of songs on here that are covers that are really good, really well put together, that capture a lot of the original material of the, the song that he's covering. And that Rod Stewart stretches himself to manage. So, like, It Takes Two, which is an old teen, uh, Marvin, uh, Gaye, right? Marvin Gaye song, right? That's fantastic. You Are Everything, which is one of my favorite stylistic songs, is fantastic. He even does better than, I don't love Tom Waits, but he does Downtown Train, which is great. I went oh, and wow. compared it to Tom Waits' one, and I like Rod Stewart's better. And those words have never come out of my mouth in that order before. <laughs> Right, and they're all yep. produced by like Edward Stewart and Trevor Horn. Really good. Oh, producers. Trevor Horn had his hands in that. He's one? got a couple of songs. Yeah, he does Downtown Train, which makes perfect sense. Same thing yeah. with Rhythm of My Heart's great song. And yeah. then in the middle of all this is is the Motown song, produced by Richard Perry. And it sounds like what Richard Perry did was like, hmm. All right, I've got a karaoke track, and all right, so I'll send this off. And he gets the recording of Rod Stewart singing it to the karaoke track, never re-records the music, keeps the karaoke track, and then he sends off like, hey, Temptations, can you do these three lines for me once? And then loops it in. It sounds so, so cheap. It's got that hallmark late, 80s, early 90s mechanical brass section, clearly played on a keyboard sound. 
You know what I thought when I heard this was that Rod Stewart didn't know the song. They like played it for him once, and it, it doesn't sound like his heart is in it. Yeah. Like all the other songs on this album, he's there. Yeah. But this one, and I don't understand why this was released as a single. I, I mean, I don't a, either. There's a lot of singles on this album that I mean. Rhythm of My Heart was a single. Yep. Uh, it Takes Two was a single. Downtown Train was, was a single. single. This Old Heart yeah. of Mine is a single. Have I Told You Lately That I Love You was a single. And right, this yeah. stupid song was a single. Yeah. I, it's like, I don't... Why? Why was this one released? I get, maybe the guy that wrote the song for like the soundtracks is like, you know what? Maybe we can get a couple more bucks out of this sucker. <laughs> All right. Before we close up the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. All right. OK Soda was a soda that came out in the 1990s. It was put out by Coca-Cola. The reason why they called it OK is because OK was the the second most recognizable word or words in any language all over the world. They had they used the number two most popular because the number one most popular was already in use somewhere. What is the most popular word or words in use that they didn't use because, uh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, I know what you're saying. Now I understand it's in any language. So I'm going to say, yeah, that's my guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a a solid guess and you're dead wrong. No. (laughs) The reason why Coca-Cola used OK for their new soda brand is because the word or words Coca-Cola was more popular or more recognizable than OK. It was already in use. So therefore, at that time, Coca-Cola's brand names were the number one and number two most recognizable words in the world. Oh, well, that yeah, that makes sense. And I guess because OK are the two core letters in Coca-Cola, it makes sense. Yes. So sure. I remember that soda. It was interesting. And I love the cans with the Daniel Klaus drawings on them. If, if nothing else, they had great marketing. All right. But that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, Bye guys. Everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Make sure you tell all your friends how much you love our podcast. Word of mouth is way, way cheaper than advertising. <laughs>